Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group, and you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Also this month, we have job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, just have a quick announcement to make. So, of course, you remember our holiday gift guide that just came out at the beginning of this month. We're doing a giveaway from December 1st to December 15th. All you have to do is just give your name and your email and which item on our gift guide you like the most. So, the contest ended on December 15th, and we've got our winner here. The winner is Paul Simmons. Congratulations, Paul. Uh, Paul said that his favorite item from our holiday gift guide was the Sphero BB-8 app-enabled droid. And of course, you know, Star Wars is coming out this week, so I figure, you know, that's a that's a good thing to want right around this time. So that's what you'll be receiving. Again, congratulations. I've already been in touch with him, so we're going to try to get that out to him before Christmas. Hopefully, we'll try to see if we can make that happen. But Paul, if you get this, definitely let us know. Send the pictures, send the tweet, send something on Facebook so we can let everyone know about it. All right, and secondly, of course, I want to thank all of you for voting for Revision Path in the Creative Market Awards for Most Inspiring Design Podcast. The winners are announced today, so I will have to kind of keep my fingers crossed and see if we actually take home the the coveted award. I'll send out news on Facebook and on Twitter once I have more information. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. You can join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today. Use the promo code SPREADLOVE and you'll save 10% off your purchase. All right, here is our regular Patreon fundraising campaign update. Still holding steady at 26 patrons right now for a combined total of $169 per month. Again, a huge thanks to all of you that have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. Really means a lot. Really helps keep the show going on a regular basis. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, free Revision Path swag. I know we're doing stickers and t-shirts right now. We'll probably do some more stuff in the near future. Uh, Head on over to patreon.com forward slash Revision Path. Make that happen. Pledge levels are really affordable. They start at just $1 per month. Now for this week's interview, I talked with Marco Rogers, software engineer and engineering manager at Clover Health. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Marco Rogers. I'm a software engineer. I work at a place called Clover Health. It's a a healthcare startup where we're trying to do some things differently in health insurance. 
and I'm actually one of the engineering managers there currently. So talk to me a little bit about what your, I guess, what you do in your role there as engineering manager. Engineering management is, is an interesting role because, you know, you kind of start out as a, a software developer where you're actually kind of building things and shipping them. But when you become a manager, your role becomes building a team, enabling them to actually grow and, and figure out how to ship things and figure out how to add value to the business as engineers. And so, you know, my day is mostly people management and kind of organizational management, right? How do we organize ourselves? How do we operate? How do we get things done effectively? So you're not really, I guess, getting your hands in the code as much as you used to, really? No, not as much. And that's something that definitely takes a little bit of getting used to. It is very much kind of a career change, but I like it. I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of feeling like I'm, I'm helping other people do their best work. Now, I took a look at your LinkedIn profile just to kind of get an idea of what your your work history is. And a lot of the work that you've done has been, you know, sort of as you just mentioned, primarily as a software engineer, SiteWorks, Atlantic Media Company, Beacon Fire, Yammer, and then now you're kind of more into this leadership role. Talk to me kind of about that shift and what that means for you. Yeah, that's interesting because I still consider myself a software engineer. When people ask me what I do, I still tell them I'm a software engineer and I'm still very much, you know, I, I still very much make a study of how you build good software. But, you know, there's a point where you move from having your individual contributions to a company to wanting to have a greater impact. At a certain point, you might get offered the position to be an engineering manager. And I guess it is a shift. It is a shift. Like you are going to be making a change to your career. That means you have to develop a whole new set of skills. And, you know, I went through a period where I was had to get used to the fact that I didn't get to have my hands in the code. Like you said, I, I didn't get to get my hands dirty as much anymore. And that's not just not being able to write the code, but that's also learning to defer to other people, right? Like mm-hmm. give engineers, give your team back the leeway to, to make their own decisions, even if it's different from, from what you might have done, right? So, you know, I've, I've been in this industry for 12 years, and so I feel like I know a thing or two, but every day I got to be like, oh, I'm going to hang back. I'm going to let you do what you're going to do. And like, you mm-hmm. know, that's how people are, like I said, are going to do their best work is if they feel like they own it, right? So it is a transition for sure. So one thing that's kind of going around a lot in the tech industry has been about building diverse teams. And I think specifically, probably as you're working for a healthcare startup, that's super important because everybody has to deal with their health, you know, at some point in their lives. How has that process been for you building a team out there? It's been a really eye-opening process. So, you know, like you're one of the people, I guess, who have kind of followed me on Twitter and other places online where I've been going on this journey of understanding the issues that are out there and why we don't have a more diverse representation in tech and really getting behind this idea that we need to change that. But it's one thing to kind of understand intellectually and it's another thing to dive in and start to figure mm-hmm. out how that would actually work. Why, you know, why is it difficult for a company to do this? And so, you know, when I took on, you know, my new role at Clover Health, I saw that as an opportunity to try to see like concretely what it's like to do this. And it is difficult. It's difficult for lots of reasons. You know, some of them are really practical and that you you have to meet those challenges. And so I would say that, you know, while we've done an admirable job at Clover, especially in terms of kind of gender parity and things, but like it's hard out here and there's lots of real, real challenges that we have to meet. And so I'm really looking for ways to move the conversation more towards what are the things that actually need to happen, right? Like we've got the conversation going. It's really important that we got the conversation going, but now like we got, we got to start giving people those tactics and, and hopefully some of my experience might be, might be helpful. What do you think some of those tactics are? 
Yeah. So biggest thing, if I was giving advice, is that you have to commit to spending the time and effort to go out and find people to bring into your hiring funnel, right? There's a lot of conversation about like whether you can find underrepresented people who are qualified. And I've got like a whole soapbox about how that's the wrong question. You know, there are definitely people out there who are qualified, but you have to go find them and you have to actually put in the effort to bring them in to interview with you because you, you can't hire them if you don't actually have the opportunity to hire them. And that's probably the first barrier that you run into, right? And so for us to start to build a diverse team, what that meant from a practical perspective is you can't just be working on inbound applications where people come to your site and apply. And you can't just be working on referrals where people that already work for you are going to find people. You have to actually do that legwork. You've got to get out there and go look for those people with the interesting profiles and reach out to them and convince them that you're a place that they want to work for. And that takes work. It takes effort. And it takes money, too. And so, you know, if, if I'm talking about real tactics, that's one of them. And when I'm talking about real barriers, I mean, like, having the time and the space and the money to put towards that. And you have to commit to doing that. I was about to kind of, I guess, segue into this other question, but you, you sort of answered that kind of. I was going to ask, what do companies kind of need to understand when it comes to trying to hire diverse teams? But a lot of what you said really just answered that. Like, it rings true. You have to put forth the effort. I think one thing that I see companies doing, because I've worked with some companies, is only doing sort of an ask over, say, email or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, only using one channel to try to reach out to people. And oftentimes you have to, I mean, depending on where you're looking, you just have to do more than that. Everything's not going to be able to be solved through an email. I mean, you may have to do a phone call. You may have to go there physically and see them and talk to them in person. And granted, the logistics behind doing that sort of stuff can vary and differ per company. But based on whatever I think your goals are as it relates to sort of filling that hiring funnel that you mentioned, I think there are ways to do that at different levels that are still pretty cost effective, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And I guess if I was trying to kind of explain a little bit more of where I was going with this, I think what you'll see a lot of times within companies, even if there there are people in there who have, you know, a real desire to do better and to find ways to increase diversity at their company, they try to go about it just with good intentions but without actually changing anything about what they're doing, right? You know, they don't change the channels that they go and search for candidates and they don't change their tactics in terms of reaching out to people. And they feel like the same tactics will work even though they haven't been working up to this point. And just adding that <laughs> that desire is going to make the difference. But that's just not really a reasonable expectation. And so you have to actually start thinking about getting creative about how you go and find these people, you know? And so I, I think that's that's kind of the thing that I see people struggling with the most, at least initially. There's some other barriers that you're going to run into, even if you get past that one, to be honest. Yeah, it's sort of like how they say the definition of insanity is trying the same thing and expecting different results. Right, right. Like you're going along the same route, just hoping that you'll find, I don't know, the quote unquote diverse hire in the same places that you've already been looking. And that's Right. I don't think that's realistic. It's not a realistic thing to, to sort of shoot for. Right. It's like you're kind of telling yourself, that that we were already here just kind of waiting and all we needed all we were waiting on for is for you to say yeah we want you come in and we were just standing around right like that's just not 
it's not really practical. I think it, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a much larger problem where you really need to think about why these people aren't ending up in your funnel and think differently about how your funnel is set up and why we don't end up inside of it, right? And so you, you have to go look and it has to be more proactive. And that's kind of, that's the mantra that I'm kind of repeating to lots of people who are asking me about it. And, and you say that's kind of been the most eye-opening thing since moving into this this leadership role is really seeing it now from the company perspective. Like it's not as easy as just, oh, just hire more black people. It's not as easy. It's not easy at all. And and I think from a practical perspective, like, you know, I guess I've been trying to find the right way to balance these things because, you know, even though I'm really outspoken and these are things that I feel really strongly about, I try to have a more nuanced view where I know that there are other factors that are important to take into account, right? And, you know, if we're kind of trying to be realistic about it, if you're at a startup and, and things are moving quickly and, and you still need to make good decisions for the business, sometimes it's going to feel like these things are in conflict, right? I don't want anybody to feel like they're going for- to be forced to make this, this hard choice. I also don't want to give people the impression that they can assume that's not true, like, like you're going to be able to care about everything all the time and you're not going to have to make trade-offs. Like that's just not a thing. And I guess for me, like business needs will always be there and apply pressure and get you, try to get you to make business decisions. But the thing that you want to do is you want to take these other, these other considerations, these other things that are important, like, like building a diverse team and creating an inclusive environment and providing a space where all of your employees feel welcome, like those things you want to bring into your decision-making process as first-class citizens. That's really the key thing, right? So if you're weighing business needs, you're also weighing, like, are we doing what we can do to build a diverse team? Are we doing what we can do to be inclusive? And then, you know, you, you make the best decisions that you can. But what I think we're dealing with today is people aren't doing that second thing. People think, business needs are going to trump everything. And I'm like, if that's going to be the case, if that's going to stay the case, we're not going to solve this problem. It's not, we're not going to be able to make a dent because money is always going to exert enough pressure that you can, you can act like nothing else matters. <laughs> you wrote a piece for Model View Culture and you, you kind of touched on some of what you wrote about just now. The piece is titled Engineering Management and Diversity. And you discuss the difference between command-based management and service-based management. This sort of kind of goes in the line of what you were just talking about in a way where, like you're saying, companies have to really kind of get out in front of the, I don't want to call it the, the problem, but it is. They have to get out in front of it. And while the, the focus on the work is important, it can't, like you said, the business needs can't trump everything. Right. No, it's, it's, it's true. So that piece in Model View Culture was really important for me. It was something that had been kind of sitting on my chest for a long time about, like, since I kind of settled into being a manager and really started to get a sense for what that meant and like what it meant to try to be good at it. Right. You know, I try to excel in in whatever role I'm in. And so I had to kind of figure out what does it mean to be a good manager? And I think the way that my thinking evolved on this, it was being a manager, being a leader more likely is basically about like, you have to be the person to make hard decisions, right? You're going to be the person who people look to, to say like, are we doing the right thing? And so you end up with a lot of leverage to say what the right thing is, right? And so mm-hmm. if you approach that in a, you know, just to kind of bring it back to the analogy that I set up, if you promote, approach that in a very command-based way and you think that what's important is I'm going to tell you what to do based on what's good for the business, then like you're only going to really get one outcome. You can drive productivity and you can drive, you know, good business outcomes, but you don't have enough of an expansive view. So you, you can achieve one outcome 
but you, you're going to have a harder time like looping in these other things that are supposed to be important, right? And so what I was, what I was making a case for, and this, the context is a little bit different, I was making a case for more service-based management where your goal as a leader is not to tell people what to do, but to build a team that knows what to do and that feels empowered to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if you do that, if you pull together you know, a wide set of people with a wide set of perspectives and that competence and that drive and that engagement with your mission, they're going to be able to do so many things that you didn't think of because one person is just not going to have the full perspective, right? So, right. you know, diversity is important in that sense because it brings in more perspectives that are going to help serve different parts of your business that you're just not equipped to serve today, right? And going mm-hmm. back to, you know, I can go on, on a tangent about this stuff, but going back to like kind of Clover Health, right? If we're talking about healthcare, right? Like having a diverse perspective about how to care for different people is super, super, super important, right? Absolutely, yeah. And to think that me, just my narrow perspective on my background and the people that I understand, and I'm going to make healthcare better for everybody, that's kind of naive. And I think that's the place where a lot of companies who are trying to do good things get into trouble because they think they can represent what everyone needs, even though they don't actually have that perspective, right? So, right. you know, that, this is why we were kind of pushing for it. It's one of the reasons, one of the important reasons why we feel like diversity is important. It's not just a, a moral imperative, even though I feel it is, but it's also really important for like actually serving the people that you're trying to serve because you just don't have all the perspectives that you think you do. Let's go back in time a little bit. Now, I know you are originally from Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Atlanta. It's funny. You're from Atlanta and we went to school right around the same time. You went to Georgia Tech. Correct. Yeah. Right. Went from. What year I graduated did you go? in 04. In 04. I graduated from Morehouse in 03. So we were here sort of right around that same time. Do you feel like going to tech really kind of helped prepare you for the working world, like with what you're doing right now? I have been asked that question a lot and I've asked other people that too. My thinking is a little more nuanced on it. You'll find that to be a theme with me. I can't give straight answers. But uh, (laughs) it makes for good podcasts. (laughs) What I'll say is that I I was very much prepared from a skills perspective, right? I had a foundation in computer science coming out of Georgia Tech. They don't teach you everything, but they do teach you how to learn things, right? I think. And so I came into the workforce and I feel like that foundation was really critical for me because what you find is even being a person who came out of a a great four-year institution, I still felt behind in terms of my skills because I was kind of standing next to people who had come out of those same good institutions but had also been doing computer science for long before that, right? You know, they had computers in their their house and they were messing around kind of playing games and and other things and, and, and writing code since they were 10, 11. And so they had a lot more practical experience and exposure than I did. And so that's one of the things that I felt like was really important for me because I, you know, I didn't have a computer when I was young. I didn't have my first computer into my senior year in high school. And so going into college, I still didn't know anything about what I was doing. And I was sitting next to people who had been doing it for a long time. And so in that respect, I think that a good four-year institution in computer science can give you a really, really good foundation to get started. That being said, I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary for everybody, but I think it was a good thing for me. Other than that, I'm not sure how prepared I was to to walk, to go into a, a corporate office environment. There were a lot of other things that I was not prepared for and had to learn. Well, talk to me, kind of. What were your first, I guess, software engineering or programming jobs once you graduated? 
Yeah. So you kind of mentioned my background a little bit. So I was at this place called SiteWorks that was in the D.C. area. I moved to D.C. after college because that was my first job. And that's where I basically learned everything that I know about web development, right? And it was a place where it was really dynamic and kind of fast moving. And, you know, so we're a contracting company, which means, you know, we got contracted out hourly to clients to build their software, right? Build them a site, build them a, a content management system, whatever the case may be. And so there were a bunch of us who were kind of straight out of college and didn't know anything, but we we're going to just learn on the job. We just kind of got tossed into the fire and it was like, you know, here's an HTML book, right? Here's a book about JavaScript and this and that. And so I think that that kind of environment, while it can be stressful, was a place that I learned a lot very, very, very quickly, right? Because if you think about, you know, what are different ways that you can learn quickly, one of them is just by doing it and then messing up a lot, (laughs) which is what Mm -hmm. I did, which is what I did, right? You know, you, you build something and you ship it, and it doesn't work and you got clients calling you and you got all these bugs and like you go and fix it and then like you learn not to do that next time. And like right. if that happens like every day for like four years, you're going to come out of that pretty battle hardened, I think. That was really my early career, which I think was really valuable in hindsight. It was stressful, like I said, but it was really valuable in hindsight. That was like that first job really was also my first experience with engineering management. And hindsight on that, I got pushed into it way early. But my later years at that company, it was like, okay, we need someone to kind of step up and lead this team. And that became like like an actual people management role. I was, you know, I had people reporting to me and I had to evaluate them. And I even was responsible for firing people if they weren't, weren't working out. And I was like 27 years old. That was, that was no good. <laughs> a lot of power. Yeah, it was a lot of responsibility and there wasn't a lot of support to figure out how to do that well. And so I came out of that not feeling great about management. And I I mean, I didn't attempt to do it again for another several years. So, you know, I feel like I learned a lot there, but, you know, I think it prepared me to do better next time, but I don't recommend it going into it too soon. Did they try to train you on management or was it just something they expected you to figure out? You know what? Like, I think that there were a couple of classes, but definitely no formal program. And Mm -hmm. There wasn't a thing where, like, strong expectations were set. Like, here are the things that you need to know. It was like, oh, okay, maybe these classes will help, and they kind of send you. And, you know, know, again, I was was 27, so I didn't really understand the context. And I was just like, you know, they're making me take these trainings, I guess, and I tried to get what I could get out of them. But it wasn't kind of applied to what I was trying to do. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't feel like it was helpful. I don't feel like I got the, the best out of it. But, I, you know, I, I will say that there were some trainings. I think there's a way that you have to couch that so that people actually know what they're supposed to get out of it. Well, no, and, and the reason that I ask that is because I think particularly when we hear about a lot of these current, I almost want to say businesses behaving badly, mm-hmm. you know, GitHub, Twitter, et cetera. These are, well, some more than others, essentially almost like the environment that you're mentioning. These are startups. These are people that generally may not have any sort of a formal management training, but they've been thrust into these roles where suddenly they have this responsibility that they need to try to, you know, kind of figure out, you know, the welfare of their fellow coworkers in some cases as to are they going to stay here? Am I going to be able to teach them? That kind of thing. And that lack of training, like you said, can be a, that can be something which can end up causing problems. I think we've certainly seen where the employees just don't really know the best way to handle it. Yeah. But then they haven't really been trained how to handle it. They haven't had management training or something. They've just been put there by proxy of the fact that they've been doing the work. Yeah, for sure. 
I think you're absolutely right. I have a, a really strong conviction that good management is really critical to building a, a healthy culture and environment at work, right? If you buy into that, if you really kind of believe that and then you kind of survey the field, you realize that like we don't put any, we put barely any effort into creating good managers, right? Like right. barely any, like however much time and effort we spend on trying to get people to be good at programming, like all the things that are around, right? Like online or whatever. And we got all this, you know, we don't really put any effort into creating good managers. Like you, you know, you're an engineer and you're just starting to feel like you might be good at that. And then they're like, we need you to do this management thing. And then they, they kind of put you in place. And I, I'm going to be projecting a little context here. I know it's not okay. everybody's experience, but I, I know that this happens a lot. You accept this role because that's your career path. That's your, your way to level up, to get promoted, to get more you know, responsibility and feel like your career is advancing. So you're going to accept the role. And then they don't really tell you what that means. They don't really tell you what you're expected to do. They don't really help you figure out what you need to learn. They're just like, start doing this job and we'll tell you when you mess up. Or they might, you might not even know when you messed up, right? Like, right, right. When I say, you know, you can do a lot of damage as a manager, I mean that in the sense that, like, you're going to be trying things, you're going to be doing things, and you're going to be interacting with your team. And because you're now their boss, because you're now the person who has their career in your hands, you're going to be have an outsized effect when you do things. If it's positive, mm-hmm. it's going to be more positive. But if it's negative, it's going to be extra negative, Right. And this is where you're going to end up with people feeling like, you know, they don't like their job or they don't feel comfortable or they can't speak up if they feel like something's wrong. Like all of that kind of comes back to you doing your job as a manager and making them feel comfortable. So we just don't spend any time really talking to people about this. And instead, what we tell them is now you're responsible for the business goals, right? You're responsible for taking these people and having them ship the right thing. And that's fine. But there's Mm -hmm. so many other things that come with it that we just don't talk about a lot. Right. right. And, and I think for folks that are listening, I wanted to be clear that we're not playing devil's advocate here. I think what we're saying is that, you know, these managers, like you said, because they're not getting that training as subordinates, so to speak, we may be giving them too much credit just based off title alone to think that because they are the manager of X, Y, Z, that they inherently kind of know what they're doing. And I'm thinking of this specifically about, of course, what's been in the news fairly recently is about the engineering manager, Leslie Miley from Twitter that left. And then he wrote that piece on Medium. And then there was that really kind of weird statement from the senior vice president there about lowering the bar or something like that. And again, not taking up for him, not defending him or anything like that. But quite frankly, it seems like the situation of just how people end up getting promoted and put into these positions, they're just not really given the vocabulary and the knowledge and the tools to make the right decisions. And then what ends up happening is like stupid shit like that ends up getting said. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, like how would they develop these skills, right? Because the other thing that happens when you become a manager is that all of a sudden, you know, because that title has been conferred on you, like people are now looking at you, like they defer to you and you're supposed to be the person with the answer, right? Like you you can't be like, I I don't know, like, you know, we need to ask somebody else, like you're on the spot. And I think a lot of people feel that pressure and that that they have to do something because they're now the one that's on the hook. But I guess the only thing I'm trying to put out there is you have to be more thoughtful about it. And and it is worth going to try to learn or, or get trained or get mentored on how to do this well, because you're going to feel that pressure to just do something, but getting it wrong has real consequences. And so 
I just think we need to put more thought into that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely being more thoughtful is crucial. And I know that we're talking a lot about this. We're kind of painting almost like a doom and gloom picture of the industry. You think so? I could be, I could be a little cynical. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's go back to you in DC. So you were working there. When did you make the move out to San Francisco? So I made the move to San Francisco about four years ago, about four and a half years ago at this point, because I had the opportunity to work at Yammer. This was a big thing for me, right? So I was still in D.C. and I was still doing the same kind of work, right? Like that kind of contracting mercenary work where like whoever's coming up and paying, like you're going to go do their thing. And I was working at a, a great place called Beacon Fire which, you know, at least made me feel a little more connected to what I was doing because Beaconfire, they try to work pretty exclusively with nonprofits, right? People who actually have a mission. And so you feel good about what you're doing. But still, you know, it was that kind of like every three months you're like working on something different. And that thing you built before, you never see it again. But uh, I had the opportunity to work at Yammer, which was kind of the startup thing. And they were building this product. And it was the first time I worked at a, uh, had an opportunity to work at a product company where I could actually like work on a thing and keep kind of putting effort into it until it, it became the thing that people wanted to use. That was really compelling to me. That was also where I really got into um, front-end engineering because I, I had really gotten into JavaScript and, and wanted to do more front-end work. But, you know, the job I was at, the job I was at didn't have a lot of that work. And then, you know, Node.js was starting to become a thing. And I, I was really kind of steeped into that in that community. And I really wanted to do stuff with Node, but it was all kind of in my free time and open source stuff. You know, I got introduced to Yammer through that, that same community. Right. So the Node uh, folks, you know, some of them ended up working at Yammer and other places that were early adopters of Node.js. And they were like, yeah, you should just move out here. Right. You know, it was that thing. They were just like, you ever thought about moving to San Francisco? And I was like, no. Why would I? You know, but uh, they were like, oh, no, <laughs> move out here. It's going to be great. So I took it to my wife and I said, well, you know, they're doing this cool stuff or whatever, but it's in San Francisco. And she was, you know, my wife's great. She was basically like, OK, they're going to pay you money to do all this stuff that you've been doing in your free time. That sounds like a good bet. Like, we should look into that. So I was like, oh, all right. You know, so we kind of made a decision together to make the leap to San Francisco. And it was mostly because, you know, I was really impressed with the folks that I met at Yammer. They're super smart people and they were building something, something cool. And it had the kind of work that I wanted to do. But then I wasn't really up on the, the whole Silicon Valley culture thing and the startup thing. I wasn't well versed in that at all when I moved out here. And it's really just been over the last four years that I've started to really understand it. What is, I guess, the tech scene and the Silicon Valley culture like for you now? So San Francisco as a, as a place to live, I feel like really works for me. It's really a place that me and my wife have settled down. And it's not for everybody, not least because it's really, really expensive. But I feel like it's a cool place. I really have kind of gotten into the community of things where like people get together and talk about the things that they love to do and hang out and you make great friends through those, right? That I feel like has been great. I worked in DC for about seven years and I'll I'll be honest, it never really started to feel like a home to me, never really started to feel like community to me. You know, I had a small circle of really tight friends, but it never really started to feel like community and and maybe that that was just me. But since being in San Francisco, I felt like it's it's been great because you know, you kind of always can find your people here, the thing, the people that like to do the thing that you like to do. And so I just felt like it's been good for me, but it's not for everybody, for sure. Now, for people that are listening, I know we have uh, programmers that listen to the show as well. Since you've kind of been on both sides of this as a software engineer and now as an engineering manager, 
what sort of skills do they need to know really for the industry as it is right now? And we can talk technical skills or soft skills or some combination of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. I also get that question a lot. And as you might imagine, I have opinions. Um, (laughs) So I've talked about this a lot and I realized that it's really important for me to set a context, right? When I talk about Silicon Valley and startup culture, that's the context because I feel like there are patterns that I see here, but it's not the same across the other parts of the industry. I know that, you know, other kinds of like uh, jobs where they're maybe more established, bigger companies, they're going to have different kind of patterns. But when I look at the culture that I've been in since moving to, to San Francisco, like web development and mobile app development will get you a job, right? Like, out of the gate, right? So you learn like whatever kind of those uh, those core web development skills are, you know, web servers and APIs, uh, HTTP, and then front end JavaScript, HTML, CSS, or you know your iOS or your Android. Learn that stuff and learn how to build an application from end to end, and you know you could be gainfully employed. That's what you need to do, right? But mm-hmm. the thing that I feel like I want to to add to that as a really strong qualifier is I'm not just talking about learning technologies, right? I'm not just talking about like, oh, you get some Ruby on Rails under your belt and you'll be good to go, right? Because the technologies are important and and the technologies can help accelerate you, but you have to have that foundation in what it means to, to build applications, right? You have to understand like, what are the different kinds of applications in terms of like, what's good for kind of a content heavy website? What do you mean when you get into a web application that has a lot more interactivity into it? What are the things that might move you into building a native mobile application versus like an iOS app or Android app? Like, so I think when I look across the board at people who come into this industry and do really well, it's because they really learn kind of the foundation of what they're doing. And it's not just that like, oh, I know Rails and I know Angular, so I'm good, right? Like, I just feel like that'll only take you so far. That'll get you maybe in the door, but then you got to like prove your stuff. What would you say is your philosophy as a software engineer? Do you have one? My philosophy as a software engineer? I do. I would say that my philosophy, I don't really feel like it's been it's been battle tested enough, but that's fine. I'll share it. <laughs> my personal philosophy as a software engineer is that there's a point where you realize that like a lot of this is the same stuff, right? Like, you know, when you look at Ruby on Rails and you look at Node.js and you look at, you know, what's happening in the front end with like React and, and Angular and other frameworks, like there's a foundation underneath that. If you build a good mental model of how these different computing systems work, you can really understand any of the technology that's out there. Like, you know, I don't really like to, to toot my own horns. I feel weird about it. But if there's anything that served me really well for my entire career, it's that any new technology that's come up, like I haven't really been intimidated by it because if you look underneath, it's all the same stuff. Right. Like if you can build a mental model of what's underneath, you can explore new technologies and get up to speed with them very, very quickly. And that's going to serve you well in your career because, you know, you don't have to say, you know, if you walk into a job and and you say, oh, I got Angular under my belt. I'm good with Angular. And they go, we're doing React over here, buddy. Like you can either (laughs) you can either be stuck or you can say, no, that's cool. I got it. I'm going to pick that up really easily because I know what's underneath is the same. Right. The web browser, if you look at it. It's all the same stuff. It's DOM, it's JavaScript engine running, and like it's CSS getting applied, and that's it. They just, you know, they put some structures around it to make certain things easier, certain things more performant, but it's the same stuff. And so getting that foundation, getting that mental model of how these things work, and being able to apply it 
to a bunch of different technologies, that's where I feel like you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And that's hard to teach. I can't say what it was that really got me there, except for just a lot, a lot, a lot of practice and learning different technologies. I got you. I hear you. Let's kind of shift gears a little bit. Talk more about you personally. I know we sort of just touched on that philosophy question, but have you had any kind of mentors or anything that have really helped you out to get to where you are now? I know you mentioned a while back that you kind of didn't have that at one point in time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I feel that. Well, so first, I feel that in hindsight, I have had people who helped me out. I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't realize it and I wasn't taking advantage of it because, you know, if I look at my first job, I went from being entry level, right? So mm-hmm. when I left being kind of a senior technical manager, right? And the thing is, I didn't, you know, if that's your first point of reference, you don't know that that's not really normal, right? You know what I mean? That's, you don't know that that's not really normal to do in, say, four years or so. And even though I, I was saying that I felt like I got pushed into it too early, in a different light, it was very much that manager. His name is Tim, and he's like the, he was the president of SiteWorks, and he always pushed me to do more than what I thought I could do, right? Even in the case where I felt like it, it was not really the, the best thing for me, I always got that opportunity, and I was given a lot more opportunity than some other people because I, I feel that he recognized that potential in me. So I really appreciate a lot of what people have done to give me that opportunity throughout my career. And if you're given those opportunities, it's really just about taking it. It's about really saying like, yeah, I'm going to try this. And you might fail, but like do it anyway, right? And so if my career is a combination of, of kind of my own effort and being given those opportunities, then like I, I feel like I've definitely been given them. But I haven't had kind of that direct mentorship. I'll say that the place where I started getting more direct mentorship is more recently, in more recent years. When I went to Yammer, I felt that I really had people who were like working with me to help me figure out how to succeed, right? If you recognize that I'm a very outspoken person, I've always kind of been this way. And I have, I can tend to rock the boat, right? <laughs> I can tend to, mm-hmm. I can tend to, to bring things up and cause tension. And I think that that can work out two ways, especially as a, as a young black man, that can work out two ways. You can, they can basically peg you as that person. And you, you know, you lose credibility and you get kind of locked out of the opportunities that might kind of take you to the next level. Or you can have those people who say, all right, you know, I get you like you're rubbing some people the wrong way, but let me work with you. Try to make sure I hear what you're saying. And then like maybe we can work on how you can say it a better way. And I think, you know, some people are going to chafe at that. Some people are going to feel like they're being kind of pushed into doing things a certain way. And to a certain extent, that does happen. But I think if you're talking about moving your career forward, you have to make that choice, right? So are you going to find ways to be more effective at having an impact on the company that you're at? Or are you going to like continue to kind of do things that cause tension and then be surprised if, if you're not making it anywhere? You know what I mean? And so yeah. I've made those hard choices. I've made a lot of those hard choices. But I, I will say that I think it's been mentorship from – I still work with him today. Chris Gale is my, our co-founder at Clover, and he brought me over from Yammer as well. And he's – the thing that I can say about Chris is that I've given him a, a ton of crap and he's like always shows up again, right? Like he, he always comes back to like, let me continue to, to give him crap. Whereas like if I was looking at it objectively and kind of some of the things that were, were, you know, I've come on really, really strong. I think somebody would have been within their rights to just write me off and be like, all right, well, I'm not going to deal with this. Right. But those people who keep coming back and who keep working with you, 
you know, you got to recognize that, that that is them trying to make a connection with you, even if they don't always do it right. And so, you know, I, I know that there's a lot there and it's pretty nuanced, but like, I do feel like I've, I've had those mentors and they've done yeah. the most for me by like just recognizing that, that there's potential there and not giving up, even though I was, I'm like a hard person to deal with sometimes. In your bio, you mentioned that you write small novels on Twitter. Correct. Certainly, I've seen that. I think other people that probably are listening have seen that. And, you know, like I said, you know, earlier at the top of the show, like they are quite prolific. And my hat really goes off to you for not just the volume and the structure, but like you will take what you have to say to people's mentions with like a combat boot and like a fist <laughs> pick and just get your point across. It's inspiring for me. I mean, what kind of feedback have you gotten from your Twitter habits in real life? A varied amount of feedback. So, you know, the first thing people say is like, you know, they're like, I follow you on Twitter and in their face, I see everything that's behind that. Right. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. I appreciate it. But then, you know, it kind of I get more feedback and it kind of ranges from I don't know how you do it. Right. Like, how do you kind of do so much on Twitter and still have it be consumable, right? I guess people feel like it's still approachable, even though I'm like tweeting like mad and that's not how people generally consume Twitter. Or it's like people are like, they feel as though what I bring to the table is that I help clarify people's thoughts. Like they have the same thoughts, but they don't know how to verbalize them. And then when they read my tweets, they feel like I'm, I'm saying the things that were in, in their head. They just didn't know how to say it. And that's why I kept doing it. That's why I keep doing it. It's not because I feel like I have everything figured out. I know that I don't. I'm really kind of working through my own stuff. But I just try to do it out loud because I felt that I've just had a lot of people tell me that they appreciate me like working through that because it helps them now work through these really complex topics because it's, it's hard, right? And if you're just in your head about it, I don't know if you'll ever really, really wrap your head around it and, and see progress. It has to be a discourse. You know, you have to have these ideas reflected back at you to help you understand them. And I feel like Twitter is good for that because it comes in kind of bite-sized chunks where you can maybe digest it and then move on. And so that's what I do. That's, that's really my only contribution to Twitter is like, I'm going to work through this and you can come along with me and maybe it'll help. But you can try to get these ideas and I'll try to organize them for you. That's really what I do. So what do you think are kind of your next steps of growth? And I'm asking this in the context of the talk that you gave at AlterCon for earlier this year, the talk was called Conforming to Succeed and What It Means for People of Color. And through that talk, I think the, the primary thread, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but the primary thread that I got throughout that talk was about sacrifice. Now that we're kind of at the end of this year, how do you feel that you've grown since then? I guess what I've been talking about is how I started this journey at Yammer coming into being a, an engineering manager and, and more so since I've been at Clover Health is that I've been on this journey to say, what does it really take to make a difference, right? So I, you know, I've accepted this role where I, I have a voice in leadership so I can be one of those people that says, here's what we're going to do, right? And bring those values and caring about diversity and inclusiveness and that kind of thing to the forefront. And I feel that I, I've made strides there. And at the same time, I feel like bring more of my full self to work. When I gave that talk, Conforming to Succeed, it was very much about how when, you know, when you see underrepresented groups, when you see people of color or whatever in these roles and they've managed to be successful, it's because 
they're really only able to show that side of their identity that people are comfortable with, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that comfort level is really important, especially as a, as a black man. When you start to make people uncomfortable as a black man, like, that never goes away. That thing will follow you forever right. and, and right. ruin any opportunities that you have. And that's a very, very real thing in my mind. And so I, I talked about how part of succeeding for me has been learning to navigate that gauntlet and be like, okay, I can push a little bit, but I can't push too much. I can push back, but I can't get loud. Do you know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. I feel that since I've been able to gain more credibility as a person who has the experience, has the background, I've built that credibility that I know what I'm talking about, then I've had to be a little bit less reserved, right? I've, I've been able to, to be a little bit more forward. I've been able to challenge things a little bit more, and I've been able to, to be a little bit more of my full self. And I appreciate that, that I'm afforded that, that ability, but it, I, I still feel like a lot of it is because, you know, I, I've been through the gauntlet, right? I've built up this credibility, and nobody can tell me today that I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, right? And that mm -hmm. goes a long way. But it's still a journey. I feel like the best thing I did was kind of land at a place full of people who at least respond and acknowledge these issues. And so I don't feel like at least I have to have that fight about why this is important. Right. So uh, I don't know. I, I hope that makes sense uh, and was the answer to your question. Where do you see yourself in, the, in, say, the next five years or so? Right now, I'm really committed to what Clover is doing. Clover, like, so I think when I was at Yammer, and we were building a social network for business, right? I very much kind of got into having a mission around the thing that you're building. You know, I was talking about being at a product company or a company that actually had a, a vision and a, a direction and an opinion about why what they were building was important. I got a little spoiled by that. And I came out of Yammer, you know, it was time for me to kind of move to the next thing. But I knew that I wanted to also stay at a place where what we were building felt like it really mattered. And being at Clover very much gives me that because we're very much going into an industry that needs to change, that needs to improve. Like healthcare is, you know, the most important thing a lot of times that people need in their lives. And, and the way that we do it in this country is just awful in so many ways. And so how can we really start to improve that? And so, you know, being at Clover is, is kind of throwing my hat in the ring to say, I want to see how we can take technology and actually apply it towards a problem that really needs to see improvement, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in terms of your question of where I see myself in five years, I hope that I'm working at like the, the biggest health insurance company on the East Coast and we're very successful and that our model of, of trying to do healthcare differently is, is really taking hold. And I, I would feel really good about that. In terms of m what my role would be, uh, I'm an engineering manager today, you know, and if I stay on this track, this is just, I, I think everybody should be really thoughtful about what their career path is. If I stay on this track, then I could be VP of engineering or something like that. That prospect is kind of frightening to me because as much as I, as outspoken as I am, I, I still have those nerves about kind of being responsible for the welfare of a business and so many people. But that's the path that I feel like I'm on and one that I feel like I want to, I want to rise to that challenge and try to do the best that I can. And, and again, taking that role and taking that responsibility is also, it also comes with the ability to affect change. So that's what I think is important to me. Okay. Well, Marco, just to kind of wrap things up, I know we've talked about a lot of stuff here, but where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say the primary place to find me is definitely on Twitter. I am Polo Tech on Twitter, P-O-L-O-T-E-K. 
And you'll also find different writing that I've done scattered around. You know, I've got a piece in Model View Culture. I would definitely write for them again. Another plug for for Shanley and what she does, because I feel like uh, Model View Culture is like one of the best things that happened to this industry in terms of having a lens where we can actually reflect on our, our culture. And I want to do more writing. I do a lot of my writing on Twitter directly. And people ask me all the time, like, why don't you put this in a more permanent permanent format? And so I'm working up to it. So uh, hopefully, hopefully that'll be the case going forward. But right now, Twitter is the, the primary place. All right. Well, man, that sounds good. Marco Rogers, again, I wanted to thank you so much for taking time out of your day for coming on the show. I really like the discussion where we sort of talked about hiring and how it looks from both ends, but also just kind of getting your kind of unfettered, unvarnished perspective on the industry and how companies can do better and things like that. I think it's very valuable information for anyone that's listening. So thank you again so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me uh, talk your ear off. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Marco Rogers and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Marco and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for absolutely free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, five stars, of course. It really helps us get new listeners, helps bump us up in those rankings so more people can find out about the show. And I'll even read your review right here on the show, at the top of the show. Can't beat that. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.